are back for episode four of Dad Remembers Sports. I'm your host, Grant Tunkel, and I'm joined, as always, by the man himself, the namesake, my dad. Dad, how are you today? Doing well. How about yourself? Doing okay. It is June 1st, 2020, and today on episode four of Dad Remembers Sports, we will be recounting something that happened eight years ago. What was that, Dad? Johan Santana, the first Met no-hitter in history. And where were we? At the game, section three, something or other, in between home and and, uh, first. That's correct, and we'll dive into that a little later in the show. But as always, at the start, we'll take a look back at episode three. Dad, you uh, artfully recounted your playing days for us. I think we're all still reeling from you declaring uh, yourself the five-foot-seven-inch Wilt Chamberlain. Do you want to offer any follow-up to that? No, I had that little fadeaway with the uh, knee up in the air, and it was impossible to block that shot. That's an insult to Will Chamberlain, uh, and, and I, I feel for him at this time. Anyway, uh, so uh, now we'll dive into what did Dad get wrong? And yet again, Dad, you were pretty flawless. Uh, another stellar performance. Did you, uh, did you do any research before you opened your mouth last week? What were we talking about? Exactly. Right. So the only thing you came close to even remotely being considered getting wrong, uh, Art Heyman played two seasons with the Knicks, 1963-64 and then 64-65. Eddie Donovan was actually the coach his first year, and then Harry Gallatin took over the second year. Well, you know, Harry Gallatin was as close as I could get. I didn't remember that Eddie Donovan was the coach. Did you look up whether Dr. Barry Kramer was on that team? Uh, Dr. Barry Kramer was on the team as well. So you got that right, too. I believe he was a dentist also. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have that one. Uh, all the other mistakes uh, that were made in the episode were mine. Uh, I quoted Allison Danzig from the December 31st, 1964 New York Times. That was Allison Al Danzig, a man, not a woman. I said she wrote, so my apologies there. Uh, I referred to later in the episode... Uh, an offensive lineman named Ron Yarrow. I have absolutely no idea who Ron Yarrow is. I meant Ron Yarry, who was a USC player, the first pick of the 1968 draft, and then went on to a Hall of Fame career with the Minnesota Vikings. That's right. He was a star. Uh, You referenced Conrad Dobler. I actually looked this up. Sports Illustrated once called him, quote, pro football's dirtiest player. Uh, And then I happened upon a story in the June 27, 2010 Los Angeles Times uh, that really detailed a lot of the struggles that, like so many other players uh, in football have gone through, uh, he's gone through in his post-playing careers. And I urge you and and the rest of our listeners to read that story. It was uh, was really tragic. Well, players were taught to play to the whistle. Conrad was taught to play through the whistle. And he kept blocking. So he he, he was one of the dirtiest players but he was a vicious offensive lineman. And he later went on to Monday Night Football, I believe. A few other notes from last week's episode. You nailed it. Joe Namath's first pro contract was $427,000. You were correct. Roy Campanello was injured in January of 1958. And one other note that I found uh, somewhat fascinating. Uh, Did you realize that the year the Jets drafted Joe Namath, they also drafted and signed Notre Dame's John John Hewitt? Yeah. Funny you it. And there was another quarterback they traded for in that draft, Jerry Rome out of Tulsa. You can look him up. He he was like the running gun, you know, quarterback at Tulsa University. 
I think he ended up in the NFL with the Cowboys somewhere down the road. Uh, but that one, I, that one you should fact check. We'll look into that one. John Hewitt actually was the reigning Heisman Trophy winner That's and cool. then was traded to the Boston Patriots uh, after one season. I was going to say that, again, Notre Dame loses to USC, yada, yada, yada. Hewitt actually, in his Heisman winning campaign, lost to USC and Notre Dame finished 9-1, and one, but they were still declared national champions in Araparsegian's first year. So they lost to USC, but they won the prize that mattered. Was that when, you, uh, that when Rudy was filmed? Uh, I think it was probably before Rudy. But again, knowing your, uh, your track record on the show, I'm, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt there. Rudy was offsides, by the way. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so that's it for What Did Dad Get Wrong? Another stellar performance by you, Dad. You can uh, pat yourself on the back. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll open up a website with uh, just a scoreboard that shows you uh, dominating the game. Uh, now we move on to our next segment, follow-up questions. I got nothing for you. Uh, I think, again, I'm still reeling from your uh, end-of-show comparison to uh, the Big Dipper. Uh, I, I just... I have nothing else to say. I mean, it's just it's just wrong on every level. I didn't get the fingertip roll. Uh, neither did Charles Smith a few years later, but uh, that might be a low blow. Now let's move on to the main story. Do you remember what you were doing on June 1st, 2012 in the morning? No. Neither do I, quite frankly. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. I was two months into a brand new job working for Major League Baseball Advanced Media. If you remember, I worked nights and weekends, so I had the, the odd day off. And I actually wanted to go golfing that day. I, I uh, as you and I have done so many times, you know, we, we, we like to play golf, especially when I was working those odd hours and had, you know, days off during the week. And you said, you know what, eh, let's go to the baseball game. Turned out to be a pretty good idea, hey? Yes. And it was, if I remember, it was a cool, chilly, with a possible rainy day that day. That's how I remember it, too. I tried to do a little bit of weather history research, but I couldn't quite come up with it. As I remember it, too, the weather wasn't going to be that great. So you and I said, you know what, let's, let's nix the golf plans and let's, let's go to the ball game. So that we did. Bought a couple tickets on StubHub. The printouts are framed in my bedroom Correct. beneath Newsday's cover that next morning. And there's a reason why. But before we get into that game, I think there's some important context we need to cover, and it dates the previous 50-some-odd years of Mets history. And that's the simple quirk that the Mets, a franchise so known for their pitching, had never thrown a no-hitter. I mean, we're talking Tom Seaver, who ended up throwing a no-hitter with the Reds, Dwight Gooden, who threw a no-hitter with the Yankees, Nolan Ryan, who, of course, has the major league record seven no-nos all after leaving the Mets. David Cohn, a perfect game. Philip Humber, if you remember the Mets prospect, he threw a perfect game with the White Sox. Yes. And then throw in pitchers like Jerry Kuzman, Jacob deGrom, R.A. Dickey, Ron Darling, Rick Reed, Noah Syndergaard. How is it possible that the Mets could not have had one no-hitter with the lineage of pitching in their first 50 years? That's correct. And as you recall the uh, longtime announcer, how he rose as soon as somebody would get a hit, he would say that's game, you know, game number 8,112 or 7,401 without a hit. And I think you and I carried on that tradition. If somebody went three or four or five innings, we would talk to each other, oh, there it goes, game number whatever. Not only did we carry on that tradition, I think as soon as the first hit, 
was allowed, you and I would pretend to get up from our seats and say, oh, there goes the no-hitter, no reason to be here anymore. That's correct. There's one night that sticks out in my memory, and it predates my presence on this earth by about 19 years. It's July 9th, 1969. I've heard this story. I've heard, I've heard this story dozens of times. Tom Seaver takes a perfect game into the ninth inning and Jimmy bleeping qualls. Yes. And what were you doing when that game was going on? Well, what's interesting is I was sitting in my room in the Bronx, 18 years old, and similar to what my father would do if things were going right, I would move from a position. I was sitting in this brown leather-type chair with my feet up on my feet up on the um, bookshelf where the TV was on top of the bookshelf. And I, and I was leaning back and I never stopped leaning. Would, and my right foot was over the arm rest. And my father walked in somewhere in the middle and said, you know, he's got a no hitter going. And then he sat in the room for a few minutes and he said, your, arm, your leg's going to fall asleep. And I never moved until Jimmy calls. And my leg did not feel better for another day or two after that. Jimmy Qualls laced a single to left field, and I saw a video of it. I'd never actually seen a video of it. I, I found a, a, an old clip uh, as part of a story, I believe, on MLB.com, and you can just see the disappointment on Seaver. I mean, his arms, his entire body language just slumped. D- do you remember what you felt in that moment? It was just like utter despair because it was like, there were a lot of no, not a lot of no hitters, but I saw a bunch of no hitters in my life on television. I saw Jim Bunning's uh, perfect game against the Mets on Father's Day. I think it was ni- 1963, 64, somewhere there. I saw Sandy Koufax no hit the, the Mets, uh, you know. So I saw games on television, but it was the Mets, the lovable Mets. And we were, you know, I was a big Met fan at that time. And Tom Seaver was the franchise. And that would have been a magical night. Seaver gets the final out of the ball game. And this was what struck me the most. He basically just didn't care. I mean, you could tell all of the energy had been drained from him, the way his entire just being just slumped to the ground. And, and I believe it was uh, Jerry Grody who was the catcher that night. And you could tell he just went out to shake Seaver's hand and, and probably said something to him like, you know, what a game. I, you know, I don't feel, don't feel bad. And Seaver said after the game, quote, it was within my grasp. I could have had it. You just don't get another chance. I can't measure the disappointment. Yes. And what's interesting also in that in those days, announcers never really told you there was a no hitter going on because it was taboo to even bring up the subject. Players never talked about it. Announcers never talked. Now, when you you know you watch a game and the guy's got a no hitter, and they'll say, "Up, oh, he's got no hits through three. That didn't happen. They would show the scoreboard with zero, 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 but they would never say there's a no hitter going on because it was considered superstitious and taboo to give a jinx to it. You, on the other hand, you love to jinx things. Absolutely. You absolutely love to jinx things. And, and when we get to June 1st, 2012, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, just to put a wrap on Jimmy Qualls, he played 43 games in 1969. 63 in his career total, 
and had 31 career hits for a 223 average. And one of those 31 broke the hearts of every Met fan, yourself included, and, and gave you a little bit of a Charlie horse for, uh, for quite some time as well. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, I always remember it was a fascinating night. So now we fast forward. June 1st, 2012. As you and I both remember it, it was a bit of a cool night. Yes. Not, the, uh, not the nicest June Friday. It was the 8,020th game in franchise history. Okay. Johan Santana starting for the Mets. Adam Wainwright, who, who of course Mets fans despise immensely for his strikeout of Carlos Beltran some, I guess that would be six years earlier. And this was the lineup the Mets threw out. Mike Baxter, Kirk Neuenheis, David Wright, Lucas Duda, Daniel Murphy, Ike Davis, Josh Tolley. Can you give me who the shortstop was? Omar Quintala or something like that, whatever his name is. I'll give it to you. Omar Quintanilla. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And Johan Santana. That's correct. According to the official attendance, 27,069 people were in attendance that day. And what was funny about that, after that night, when we posted something on social media, must have been four different people told me they were at the game. But that's like 200,000 people were at the game that Bobby Thompson hit the home run. And Polo Grounds only held 50,000 people. <laughs> well, I can tell you for sure, your friend Emil was there. He posted pictures with his son, Taylor. Uh, our friend Bill, uh, who we go to uh, Jets games with, he was also there. And you know who else was there? I learned this today. Marcus Stroman was in attendance in the stands as a fan. He, really? was, not, he was not yet drafted into professional baseball. He was in the stands that day. Well, he was from Long Island, as I recall. That's correct, yeah. What, a, what an incredible turn of events. I saw him retweet himself today, and I, I thought that was pretty cool. So the game gets off to a, a bit of a slow start. Santana throws 17 pitches in the first, 24 in the second. What? 30 you got to stop, stop there. We're stopping. Go ahead. As I recall, I said to you, after there were no hits through two, and it was like 40 some, like 30, 40 pitches thrown, I said to you, it's going to take 135 tonight to get it done. And because I always did the math thinking about it. Okay, we got to no hitter. How many pitches? I said, it's 135. Then you looked at me like I was crazy, knowing that he was on a pitch count that night. Not only was he on a pitch count, he was coming off of major surgery. It was one of his first starts back after missing over a year. And he was a, a bit of a hot commodity. If the Mets were going to contend at all that year, Johan Santana was going to have to be the ace of the staff. So Terry Collins had told reporters before the game, yeah, he's on a pitch count tonight. We're not going to let him go any further than he needs to go. Right. So he has 41 pitches through two. He throws a nine-pitch inning in the third, which ended up being his quickest inning. And in the fourth, after retiring the side on 12 pitches, that's when the Mets take the lead. Lucas Duda sacrifice fly to make it one nothing. Daniel Murphy triple to make it 2 nothing. And at that point, I'm thinking to myself, I still, uh, something's going to happen. Four innings, it's, it, the game's too young. No chance. Because it never happens. 8,000 games proved it. <laughs> then we get to the fifth, 17 pitches. And then we get to the sixth. Top of the sixth. It's 2 nothing Mets. And this was the first time, I don't know about you, but this was the first time I actually believed it could happen. 
because Carlos Beltran comes to the plate, hits a line drive past third base, looks like it nicks up some chalk on the line, and Adrian Johnson rules it foul. It was a fair ball for sure. Replay confirms it, but it was called foul. And I don't know about you, that was the first time I really thought something like that happens, we got ourselves a chance. Yes, and it was quite interesting that, you know, as you know, in this day and age, that's clearly a base hit because of replay, but the human factor always came in. Wasn't there a tiger no-hitter that something happened at first base where the human factor uh, entered into the game? It was. It was the summer of 2010. Armando Galarraga actually had a perfect game. Right. And the 27th out was recorded at first base. He beat the runner to the bag by a step. And Jim Joyce, who uh, was widely considered one of the best umpires in the game, ruled the runner safe. Right. And so that ended up costing Armando Galarraga the perfect game. Here on the flip side, it, of course, keeps Johan Santana's no-hitter intact. Well, that's why the baseball purists like the, uh, the human factor as opposed to the technical factor. And as I said to you that night and said to so many people, how many no-hitters in baseball history, how many big plays in baseball history do you think have occurred before television had every angle possible where an umpire made a mistake like that to change, you know, all of history on a given night? The angles only took place really in World Series games where the networks invested more money into cameras. For a regular game, it was a basic couple cameras, you know, first base, third base, behind home plate. You know, now you get to World Series and there's 17 cameras all over the place, let alone replay. Then in the bottom of the sixth inning, Lucas Duda hits a three-run homer. And as I remember... The great Lucas Duda. Something like that. And as I remember saying to you at that point, it's five nothing Mets. And I remember saying something to the effect of, all right, we've got one reason to be here now. That's right. And you said, I believe you said, all right, we could focus on the no hitter right now. And I'm sitting there going, you gotta be kidding me. He's jinxing it. He's saying it out loud. (laughs) But there you were. There I was. So now we get to the seventh. Santana needs 14 pitches to get through the seventh. And this was basically when I knew that this might be the night. I didn't want to say it out loud, but I knew it. And you remember what happened in the top of the seventh inning? Was that, was that the shot that the Baxter bounced off the wall and destroyed his shoulder? Mike Baxter, Mike a, Baxter, a Whitestone, Queens native, grew up a Mets fan, goes back to the wall on a line shot hit oh, by... Wasn't, it wasn't a fly ball. It was a line shot. And we, we had a perfect angle on it because we were, you know, looking straight ahead at it. And I, in my own mind, said, there's no way he's catching it. This one's over. Not only did he catch it, held on to it, smashed his shoulder into the left field wall, crumpled to the ground, had to leave the game. Right. Really was, was never the same, much, much like Santana. But I remembered distinctly, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember distinctly in that moment, as soon as he made the catch and it was, the umpire called out, you and I turned to each other and, and said nothing. We just looked at each other and our mouths were just agape because I, I think in that moment, we both realized what we had witnessed. Well, that's true because what happens typically in a lot of these in, in, in no-hitters or perfect games, there's always that moment. There's always that moment that somebody makes an unbelievable play to save the no-hitter attempt or, you know, at that point. And that was that moment. 
I remember the summer before that, I was still announcing in minor league baseball, working for the Mahoning Valley Scrappers. And our hitting coach at the time was a, a guy named Tony Mansolino, who had played college ball with Mike Baxter oh. at Vanderbilt. And I remember Tony saying to me on a bus ride to somewhere, saying how excited he was that Baxter was a good guy. And, you know, he grew up a Mets fan and this must be the thrill of a lifetime for him. And, and, and he gets to play the hero's role in that game. And, and like I said, I just remember looking at you going, oh, my gosh. This, this is it. I mean, we didn't say anything, but that's what our faces told each other. It was, uh, that to me is one of the moments that sticks out about that night was that play and that reaction because I, you and I sensed it. And I think that's when the ballpark started to sense it. Yeah, it became, it became electric at that moment because I think everybody at that point said, that's it. That's the moment, the play that happens. That, and like I said to you before, there's always that a play that just makes it happen. Then in the bottom of that inning, the Mets put the game away for good. David Wright drew a bases-loaded walk for 6-0. Daniel Murphy drove in two with a single for 8-0. And so it's an eight-run lead, six outs to go, and Santana's on 107 pitches through seven innings. And I, Go ahead, go ahead. And Terry was on the hot seat probably what to do because Santana was the franchise pitcher at that point. Well, there have been stories written since then where, where Terry basically talks about how bad he feels, that he, he feels as if he might have ruined Johan Santana's career because he let him go so many pitches that night. I, you know, obviously, you, you, pitching is, is such a crapshoot in the sense that you can never truly tell when a pitcher's arm may or may not go. But Collins maintains to this day that that night might have had something to do with the end of Santana's pitching career. And I think it might've been at that point, I can't remember when, but it came out later that, that Collins went up to Johan in the dugout at some point late in the game. And he said, Johan, you're my hero. Yes. I remember reading that, but again, you know, he asked the pitcher, do you want to come out? There was no way Santana was coming out. Not much different than the Matt Harvey in the world series. You know, Um, there was no way he was coming out and giving up a chance for the no hitter. Terry had a tough, uh, tough call because I'm sure management could not have been happy with him later in the season. Do you remember the bottom of the eighth inning, three outs to go, and Santana actually came to the plate with two outs? Yeah, the place went wild. The place went wild. Actually, one out, I should say. And if I remember correctly, he never took the bat off his shoulder. He took six pitches. Uh, I can't remember who the pitcher was at the time, but he almost walked him. He had to strike him out on a 3-2 pitch, and the place was just bananas. I mean, it was, it was, like, it was one of the most incredible nights of my entire life. It was, and, obvious, it was obvious that he was just conserving energy and did not want to put out any effort, and he was going to save it for the ninth inning. What was running through your head when, when he took the mound for the ninth? It was like, wow, I'm really going to get it up. I'm really going to get the chance to see a no-hitter live. I've never seen one. So to me, it was – and it was special, you know, being a Met fan. Even when I watch games on television and you and it's other teams, and you, it's just a special thing when somebody does something so unique. So, But this was so different. A, I was with you. We, we're diehard Met fans. You know, we, we tune in when the no-hitters are going if we're not watching it, you know, through the 162-game season. We, we, we make sure we see, stay to the end on that. Um, and it was just special, like I said, being with you, being with a no-hitter. And, you know, it, 
it's sort of like, wow, I, you know, a lot of years in this earth and I've never seen one live. So I was really jacked up for that. So we get to the ninth. First batter is Matt Holiday. No easy out. He lines out to center field. Okay. Second batter is Alan Craig. He was a powerful hitter back in the day. He flew out to left. And then we get to the final batter. It's David Freeze. Wasn't who, he the MVP in the World Series? He was the MVP in the World Series the year before. Right. Johan runs the count three and one, throws a strike for three and two. And, and, and then on that payoff pitch, a changeup, freeze strike strikes out. And the place just goes absolutely wild. And, and there's not a lot that I remember. You know what's funny to me? I didn't take any videos. I wasn't, didn't have my phone up to record anything. I was just, I remember being there just in the moment and just squeezing the ever loving daylights out of you. It was, yes. it, it was, it was one of the, it was one of the most unbelievable moments. I, you know, not to be hyperbolic, which, you know, you and I both can be. Woo. It was one of the most unbelievable moments of, of my entire life. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Right. It's a special moment. I mean, a no-hitter is just so unique when you think about how many have been thrown in over, over, over all these games that have ever been played. Place goes nuts. I have a couple pictures blurry on my phone but of the post-game celebration, but really, really nothing crazy. And I remember two things. I, I remember leaving the stadium and saying to you, I remember saying this specifically, I said to you, I, I think you can move your leg now. <laughs> well you had heard the jimmy qual story a thousand times and i remember you smiled and the car ride home was pretty silent because you and i both just could not get enough of that post-game show i think we were drained also and we wanted to hear every word we wanted to hear every word out of the post-game show um it was just very special and i remember besides us hugging and squeezing i do remember the the crowd the the, the surge of the players onto the field i remember that surge I think everybody understood the moment, you know, uh, even, even the players who were not necessarily the David Wrights and the Lucas Duders of the world or the Mike Baxters of the world. I think everybody really understood the moment. Yeah. Well, Cause again, it's special even for a player. How many of them ever, ever really participated in a historical evening? And you and I were there. Yeah. I, I, I remember it and I will always remember it. And we got home, and I remember we sat down to watch, you know, SNY and, right. and MLB Tonight, and we watched ESPN, and, and you and I, neither of us could go to bed. How many, I mean, How many times was the replay of Carlos Beltran's uh, um, foul ball base hit? You know, it, it was probably just as much as the last out, but again, who really cares, you know? That's, right. That's exactly right. That's what makes baseball so beautiful. Yes. Um, and that was a night that, uh, you know, I personally – like I said, we'll, we'll never forget. Um, Santana, sadly enough, only goes on to pitch 10 more games in the rest of his MLB career. Uh, you know, he had, a, I believe he had an ankle injury later that season, and then he hurt his shoulder, and he tried another comeback, and that failed. And, and it, was, it was really sad. You know, Santana's career as a Met was terrific. You know, he pitched some really incredible games in the late first decade of this millennium. Obviously, the no-hitter will, will, will go down in history. Um, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of Johan Santana, um, I don't think of, of the way his career ended as a Met. I, I, think of, I think of, you know, his incredible contributions 
at the start of his Mets career, I think of the day they acquired him, and, and above all, I think of that that special June night at City Field. Correct, but he was a, a, a star for Minnesota. He was a star pitcher. His his career was probably on a Hall of Fame trajectory until the injuries crept right, in. Because he didn't have enough, he would not get enough after that, enough starts or seasons to play. But he'll never have to buy a drink in Flushing uh, <laughs> for the rest of his life. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll be the first to pick up the bar tab, I'll tell you that. Very nice. One last question, Pops. When you're watching a Mets game at home now, and the pitcher's got a no-hitter going through five, six, do you root for a tent? No. I, 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 I want a no-hitter. I enjoy it. You know what? Johans was special because we were there. But I'd love to see another Met guy pitch a no-hitter. It would be great. It would just be absolutely great. I always thought Dickey would do it one day with yes, that crazy that crazy knuckleball. I, I always thought Harvey would give us that special moment. I, I still think DeGrom or, or Syndergaard might be able to. Uh, but a little bit of me, a little bit of me says, you know what? Part of me wants to go another 50 years because it, it you know, Oh, you want to be the one that was there so it doesn't get watered down. I understand that. It'll, you know what? Hearing you say that, though, it's true. It'll, it'll, be hard to, it'll be hard to water down that memory anytime soon. That's correct. Well, Pops, thanks again for hopping on the Zoom call, reminiscing about, uh, like I said, one of my absolute favorite days as a, as a Mets fan, as a sports fan. Uh, in my entire life, getting to share that moment with you is something that I'll, I'll cherish forever. Special to meet you. Love you, Pops. Love you too. Enjoy the night. Bye. Bye.